Hymns of Grace to begin our afternoon worship, 172 in the Hymns of Grace. Please stand. standing. Brother Quentin, would you lead us in prayer, please? Amen. Please be seated. <coughs> Isaiah Chapter 8 is where we are at. Yeshayah, Jehovah is salvation. What a wonderful name that is. I love, I love the names that have the I-A-H on the end of them. And in Isaiah 8, we have another 
child sign. You remember in chapter 7, uh, verse 14, we had a child sign. The virgin uh, would be with child. And then uh, there was a prophecy uh, regarding um, him before the child shall know to refuse the evil and choose the good. The land that you abhor shall be forsaken of both her kings, speaking of uh, Assyria and the northern kingdom of Israel. And so, again, we have a prophecy, another child sign given to uh, Isaiah uh, in chapter 8. And this time <clears throat> he is going to be the father Isaiah is going to be the father of that child with the Bible's longest name, by the way. And before that child uh, knows how to say father or mother, uh, the riches of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria shall be taken away before the king of Assyria. So again, prophecies uh, against uh, the northern tribes and the Assyrian uh, confederacy that they had had. And then this child, again, will be, uh, I believe this would be Isaiah speaking uh, in the first place, but we know from the New Testament something more. In verse 18, he says, Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are for signs and wonders and thanks to the writer to the Hebrews, we know that this is referring to Christ. And it's a reminder, a wonderful reminder, uh, that Christ, he says, is not ashamed to call us brethren. Isn't that an amazing thing? The Holy uh, Son of God is not ashamed to call you and me uh, brethren. So, enough from me. Uh, Isaiah chapter 8. Then Yahweh said to me, Take for yourself a large tablet and write on it in ordinary letters concerning Maher Shalal Hashbaz. And I will take to myself faithful witnesses for testimony, Uriah the priest and Zechariah the son of Jeberechiah. And I drew near to the prophetess, and she conceived and bore a son. Then Yahweh said to me, Call his name Maher Shalal Hashbaz. By the way, that means swift is the spoil, speedy is the plunder. So that is it's less of a mouthful in Hebrew than it is in English, isn't it? <laughs> it's our uh, <laughs> the, the Gentile barbaric tongue <laughs> always takes more syllables. For before the boy knows how to cry out, my father or my mother, the wealth of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria will be carried away before the king of Assyria. So the God who works all things according to his will can tell us before they come to pass exactly what will come to pass, and he even puts a date on it. So uh, glory in him. Again, Yahweh spoke to me, verse 5. Further saying, inasmuch as these people have rejected the gently flowing waters of Shaloah and rejoice in reason and the son of Remaliah, now therefore behold, the Lord is about to bring on them the mighty and abundant waters of the river, the king of Assyria and all his glory. 
and it will rise up over all its channels and go over all its banks. So the river is the symbol for Assyrian uh, overflow into kept overflow into and the captivity of uh, the land. Then it will sweep on into Judah. It will overflow and pass through. It will reach even to the neck. And the spread of its wings will fill the breadth of your land, O Emmanuel. Be broken, O peoples, and be shattered. And give ear all remote places of the earth. Gird yourselves, yet be shattered. Gird yourselves, yet be shattered. Devise counsel, but it will be thwarted. Speak a word, but it will not stand, for God is with us. For thus Yahweh spoke to me with a strong hand and disciplined me not to walk in the way of this people, saying, You are not to say it is a conspiracy in regard to all that this people call a conspiracy, and you are not to fear what they fear, and you shall not tremble. It is Yahweh of hosts whom you should regard as holy. And he shall be your fear, and he shall be your cause of trembling. Then he shall become a sanctuary, but to both the houses of Israel, a stone to strike and a rock to stumble over, and a snare and a trap for the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Another uh, well-known passage uh, quoted in the New Testament by Peter. And verse 15, and many will stumble over them, then they will fall and be broken, they will even be snared and caught. Bind up the testimony, seal the law among my disciples, and I will wait for Yahweh, who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob, and I will hope for him. Behold, I and the children whom Yahweh has given me are for signs and wonders in Israel from Yahweh of hosts who dwells on Mount Zion. Now, when they say to you, inquire of the mediums and the spiritists who whisper and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? To the law and to the testimony. If they do not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn, no light in them. And they will pass through the land hard-pressed and hungry, and it will be that when they are hungry, they will be angry and curse their king and their God as they face upward. Then they will look to the earth and behold distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be banished into thick darkness. Before the preaching of the word, turn in your Trinity hymnals to number 206. Though we ended on a sad note in Isaiah 8, yet for the New Testament believer, how glorious Christ the Lord is risen. Number 206, please stand.
Well, how could you not say amen to that? Turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter chapter 1, technically the whole book today. Uh, don't get nervous. <laughs> don't get nervous. I'm not preaching through the whole book verse by verse today. Uh, when we finish up with our trek through the attributes of God, we're going to be walking through 1 Peter verse by verse, not in one Sunday. Uh, but today, I want to give us sort of a 30,000-foot view of this book. And there's a reason, a really, really important reason that I think it's important for us to get an iron grip and a clear-eyed view on the contents of the book of First Peter. And it's because if you don't live under a rock, which I don't think... I don't think there's anyone here that lives under a rock, so should be aware that we're living in an increasingly hostile culture as the Church of Jesus Christ. We were just talking about some of that this afternoon, about some potential opposition that the church could be facing. You know, not much has come of it yet, but we don't know what the future holds. We could, we could end up being very, very opposed here in the near future. Even outside of this congregation, it should be apparent that we're living in a hostile culture. Um, if, you're awareing, if you're aware of what's happening in our nation, or even in our own state of Michigan, you understand that the days of comfortable Christianity are gone. The American dream Christianity, where the culture generally thinks the same way that we do, values the same things that we do, and wants the same things that we want, are dead and gone. The secular paganism of our world has killed American dream Christianity. The, the fact of the matter is, we're at a pivot point, and maybe we were there a long time ago, and we've just been too asleep to realize it, where we're going from ministering as the Church of Jesus Christ in a primarily positive and accepting culture to what we love and value, to ministering in an increasingly negative world. The attitude toward the Church of Jesus Christ is going from acceptance on certain terms to opposition at all costs. That is where we're at in our cultural moment right now. Just an example, think about this. Not too long ago, the Michigan House of Representatives passed a, a bill that would make it illegal to preach or counsel from Scripture according to a biblical understanding of sexuality and gender. You counsel someone who's confused about their gender or sexuality, and you say, well, actually, in the beginning, God created the male and female. And he brought the man to the woman, and he blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. If you preach that there is man and there is woman or even if you counsel on a personal level that there is man and there is woman and the only place for sex to happen, blessed by God, is in the covenant of marriage and it's for the purpose of producing godly offspring, potentially, you'd be hauled in as a felon. Somebody says that that message caused them personal trauma and harm. You could now be 
convicted felon or have to pay a several thousand dollar fine. For what? For believing what we all believed ten minutes ago. This is a brave new world. This is a world that is not, not even like it was five years ago. I mean, there were echoes of it, but it's so much different. It's intensifying. You can, and it, if you're watching the news or if you're just living your life in public on a day-to-day basis, I'm sure you can feel it in your gut. We're facing a different world than we were. The church is realizing that we're called to be a missionary people with the stench of heaven, not people who are after the same thing that everyone else in our culture is after. We're not after the American dream. We're citizens of the kingdom of heaven. And that is the reality that the Apostle Peter preaches into in this letter of 1 Peter. Because Peter, in a couple of years, is going to lose his head for Jesus. In a couple of years, people think this letter was written around A.D. 62. Peter's martyred under Nero, maybe A.D. 67. Someone can check me if I'm remembering that wrong. But he is also living in a hostile culture and he writes to an audience that is living in a hostile culture and it's about to get way worse for them. First Peter is a letter, and this is why I think it's important that we study it. First Peter is a letter that teaches us who we are and what we should expect from the world. Jesus, who we are and what we should expect from the world and the living hope that waits for us in the age to come. First Peter is instructive to us about our identity as Christians, whose we are and what we are. It tells us what we are for in this world and it tells us what to expect from those who live in the kingdom of darkness around us. And it tells us that our ultimate hope is the kingdom of heaven and not anything that we see around us in our culture. We need to meditate on the truths of this book. I'm hoping we'll get just a little bit of a taste of it this morning. But first, we're going to get get a, a little bit of a familiarization with the author and the audience, because even the author and the audience are instructive to us. The author is Peter the Apostle. Look at verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, so five provinces in Asia Minor in the first century according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. So it's clear Peter the Apostle is writing this. But his audience is especially instructive to us. He says he writes to those whom he gives a, a theological and, and a experiential descriptor to. Elect exiles. Look at that in verse 1. To those who are elect exiles of the dispersion. Now, once again, these are churches who 
elect exiles gives us a clue. They just begun to experience the beginnings of persecution that would increase in severity throughout the rest of the first century. Do you, if you want an uh, if you want a uh, example of of the increasing severity of persecution in Asia Minor in the first century, uh, take a look with me at Revelation chapter. 2 verses 8 through 8 through 13 because the seven letters to the seven churches that open the book of revelation written i know there's some disagreement about this written roughly ad 90 this so this is this is a few decades or a couple decades after peter writes to his audience we can tell from peter's instruction in his letter that persecution is just beginning persecution is much more intense and widespread in asia minor by the time john writes uh, the prophecy of revelation in ad 90 take a look at revelation 2 verses 8 and 9 and you can see some of that And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. But I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you're rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested. And for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who con- to the one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. That's intense persecution. Demonically inspired, state-driven persecution. You dwell where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name and you do not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was killed among you where Satan dwells. I have a few things against you. You have some who are holding the teaching of Balaam who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. That's always the purpose of persecution. It's to get the church to act like the world. But you can see from how John writes in AD 90 that there are, in the same area, pockets of really, really intense persecution to the point where people like Antipas, whom Jesus calls his faithful witness, uh, are killed among their brethren. So we can see a natural sort of intensification, and it appears that Peter writes sort of at the beginning of this cycle. He's writing to prepare them. He writes as if they are standing on the precipice of something awful. They've already begun to experience some of it. That becomes clear in this letter. But it will become much, much worse. And Peter is writing to infuse their spine with steel. Be ready to suffer. Understand who you are and whose you are. That's Peter, Peter's message. And that's their situation. But... There is some disagreement about who these elect exiles are to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion. Does the dispersion ring any bells for anybody? Does the dispersion ring ring any bells? It's, It's a common theme. Exile and dispersion are a common theme in the Old Testament scriptures. Uh, 8th century BC, Babylon comes in, wipes out Judah, carries a bunch of people off into exile. Some of them come back 
uh, later on under Cyrus. Not all of them do. Some of them stay and they plant synagogues and they're called the Jews amongst the dispersion. That's what they're referred to. And actually, you can see that in John chapter 7.35 where Jesus says, I'm about to go away and the Jews are questioning amongst themselves saying, is he going to go to to the dispersion and preach to the Greeks? And because of that, some people think that this audience whom Peter calls elect exiles of the dispersion, some people believe that these are Jewish Christians left over in these other areas from the deportations to Assyria and Babylon in Old Testament times. They think this in large part because of the language that Paul's, Paul uses. The Greek word diaspora is utilized, which was used even by even other places in the New Testament to speak Uh, about Jews that were still scattered abroad. So there are some people who see elect, God's people Israel were elect in the Old Testament. They see exiles, exile is a common theme, judgment of God in the Old Testament. They see diaspora and they connect this with ethnic Jews. That's, so that's, uh, that's probably the minority view today, honestly, that these were uh, Jewish Christians specifically that Peter was writing to. But the majority view is that these were Gentile Christians throughout this region. And the reason that Peter calls them elect exiles of the diaspora, or the dispersion, the reason that Peter describes them in Jewish language is to make it clear that they have been carved out of the rest rest of the pagan Gentiles and set apart to serve the same God that gave his covenants of promise to the Jews. So when Peter says, Peter, apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the diaspora in all of these regions, according to this view, he's still addressing Gentiles, but he's making a point. He's making a point that you are part of the covenant people of God now. And you dwell in this hostile situation among the kingdoms of the world, just like the exiles of the faithful exiles in the Old Testament did, just like Daniel and his friends uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did, you are in their situation. You belong to the living God, but you're living in the midst of a world that is ruled by the prince of the power of the air. That's personally the view that I hold, too. I think Peter's writing this to Gentiles, and I think that's a beautiful truth, and I think that it's proved in a couple of ways. Turn, look at me at First Peter 1:14. First Peter 1:14. He's instructing them how they're to live in the world. He said, "As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as He who called you is holy, be holy in all your conduct." The passions of your former ignorance is not generally how the New Testament describes Old Covenant observing Jews. The passions of your former ignorance are, is terminology that is associated with pagan idolatry. The passions of their former ignorance were, was that sexual immorality that characterized even the worship of their deities. It was the rampant sexual immorality in those cultures. So it would be very odd for Peter to be addressing Jews in this way. Were there some Jews that were sexually immoral? Probably. But generally, that's not how the New Testament writers address converted Jews who have converted to Christ. This is former Gentile language. This is former pagan 
language. Look at 1 Peter 2.18. We see something similar. 1 Peter 2.18. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect. Excuse me, that's not the right one. First Peter 1.18, excuse me. Knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. The feudal ways of their forefathers. Generally, the New Testament doesn't describe Old Testament religion as futility in that context. This, coupled with the passions of their former ignorance, paints a picture of formal or former Gentile idolatrous pagan practices. First Peter four, three and four also uh, seems to fit into this. First Peter four, three, for the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. So I think the implication here is that they once were like their fellow Gentiles. They once were living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. But now there's a separation from those other ones whom Peter is calling Gentiles. These people are now the people of God, sanctified by the Spirit, sprinkled with the blood of Jesus Christ, like 1 Peter 1 verse 2 says. He calls them elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. So God chose you out of this mass of people and foreknew or foreloved you. In the sanctification of the Spirit, what did we say this morning that it was to be made holy? To be made holy was to be set apart and devoted to the service of God for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood, the blood that was shed to remove every spot and stain of their former passions uh, in their ignorance, the guilt that they had incurred from that way of life. So it seems that Peter is addressing Gentiles. He says that he was, he's addressing Gentiles, but now who were formerly uh, engrossed in pagan religion, but now are, 1 Peter 1.21, believers in God. 1 Peter 1.23, they're born again through the living and abiding word of God. 1 Peter 2, 4 and 5, they're living stones, a spiritual house, a holy priesthood. 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10, once they were not a people, but now they are God's people. Peter is, Peter's point is that even though these are Gentiles, in Jesus Christ, they've been joined to the true Israel of God, the faithful remnant. All of God's promises in Jesus Christ are theirs. Paul calls the Old Covenant promises, the Old Covenant, uh, the covenants of promise. All of those are fulfilled in Jesus Christ, and even Gentiles are partakers of those promises in Jesus. The kingdom is theirs. The inheritance in the future that he talks about in chapter 1, verse 4, is theirs. It's not just for Jews. Gentiles are brought into the fold. That's why elect exiles among the dispersion is an important phrase to understand because he's talking about people who were formerly far from, formerly far from God and separated from him through their lawless 
idolatry, and they've been truly reconciled and joined the people of God. This mirrors what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2. Look at Ephesians chapter 2 with me. Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 11. Paul speaks to these Ephesian believers in the same way that Peter speaks to the elect exiles in those five regions of Asia Minor. Notice the similar terminology about what they were and now what they are. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments and expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself, what? One new man in the place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near, for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints, members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Paul and Peter are talking about the same reality here. Gentiles are joined to the people of God. God, through Jesus Christ, has killed the hostility and brought those who were formerly far off near to himself. The dividing wall of laws and ordinances has been done away with. All of our guilt has been done away with through Christ's cross. So who's Peter writing to? He's writing to the people of God. He's writing to those who have every single promise that God made to his people as their own. So by saying of the dispersion, Peter does not mean that they are ethnic Jews of the dispersion. Rather, he is taking the reality of exile that Israel had endured in the Old Testament and he's applying it to Gentile believers. Just as Old Testament Israel dwelt as the people of God, elect, in exile among Assyria and Babylon, in the midst of hostile peoples, so that is now your reality as the people of God. That is what Peter is saying. And this is actually further proved how Peter, from how Peter addresses uh, the letter at the very end. Turn, to, turn with me to the very end of the letter uh, in chapter 5. This is just one final point about the recipients of this letter. in uh, verses 12 and 13. 
by Sylvanus. So Sylvanus was writing this letter as Peter dictated it to him. A faithful brother, as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. This, this next phrase is the one that is important. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you her greetings, and so does Mark, my son. He says, she who is at Babylon. Here's the problem. Babylon's not around. Babylon was wiped out a long time ago. So in both his address to the elect exiles of the dispersion and from her who is at Babylon, you can see that Peter is speaking figuratively here. He's making a point about their identity as the people of God in the midst of a hostile culture. Peter would lose, like I said, would lose his head under the reign of Nero in just a couple years' time after writing this. He calls the place that he and either some woman or the church that dwells with him Babylon because it is the seat or the throne of the principalities and powers, the rulers that are now at work and the sons of disobedience. He says, I dwell at Babylon as sort of the, the center of worldwide rebellion against the reign of Christ. That's why he addresses it from Babylon to elect exiles. He's identifying with them. He's saying, we're the people of God in exile on the way to a better home, on the way to receive an inheritance when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven. Our hope isn't here in this world. It is there, and it will be revealed from heaven when Christ comes again. That is the point that he's trying to impress on his people in this letter. That's what calling his readers elect exiles does for us. That's what seeing his readers as elect exiles does for us. It gives us a banner or a theme under which we can place all of the contents of this letter. You can see this entire letter just through Peter calling them elect exiles. What I want us to see first is that elect exile shows us our identity. That's going to be a big thing in this letter. Elect exiles perfectly sums up who we are in this world. It's not just experiential, but is a theological, spiritual reality. Believers are, verse 1, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Verse 2, we are foreknown. Verse 2, again, we're sanctified by the Spirit. The last part of verse 2, we're sprinkled with Christ's blood. And this has affected an entirely new creation that is alien to the creation that we dwell in the midst of. We're, chapter 1, verse 23, since you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. We've been born again through the word of God. Born into what? A new family with a new kingdom. Chapter 1, verse 3 says something similar. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So what does being born again do? It gives us a living hope that is not the hope of those who dwell in the kingdom of this world. We're born into a better family and a better kingdom in Christ through the gospel, through Christ's resurrection. Jesus has become the head of the new creation 
and he's recreated us in his image. The reality of a believer's new identity in Christ is pervasive. We have a new belonging. We belong, we're we're elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. We have a new nature. We're born again. We have new desires. We have new hopes. Look at that. Born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven by you, uh, for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and honor and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. We have new belonging, new nature, new desires, and new hopes. Our hope, unlike the hopes of this world, is the revealing of the glory of Jesus Christ from heaven. That is our hope. We don't put our hope in anything in this world. We have new hopes that are in accordance with our new identity in Christ, and we have new expectations of the world around us. We see the world clearly for what it is now. That is the dynamic of what Peter is writing. New identity produces new expectations of the world around us, produces new, living, lasting, true hope for the people of God. So the second part of that, Peter gives us a clear-eyed view of what to expect from the world. Because elect, our identity in Christ, chosen by God, saved, sprinkled with the blood of Jesus Christ is only half the picture. That is the positive aspect of our sanctification or our being set apart for the service of God. But there's also a negative aspect of it too. The other half of the equation is exile. You are elect and you are an exile. You are elect into the family and kingdom of God and you are an exile in this kingdom of the world. There's no such thing as being elect by God and at home in the world. No such thing. If you're at home in the world, make no mistake, you're estranged from God. But if you are elect by the Father because He loves you, set apart from the world, carved out through the sanctification of the Spirit, and sprinkling with Christ's blood, you are in opposition to the world in your very nature now. You're seated with Christ in the heavenlies. Everything that is His in His kingdom is yours in Jesus that automatically puts you in opposition to the world. There is no dual citizenship in the kingdom of heaven. Naturalization into the kingdom of heaven means denaturalization from the kingdom of the world, which is ruled by the prince of the power of the air. So what kind of expectation does that produce in us from the world? Well... I think that it produces the expectation and Peter is writing to his audience because they've lost any expectation of having it easy sailing in this age. And this is one of the things that's so troubling to me about the rise of, this might be a new term for some, but post-millennial eschatology. This belief that as the gospel permeates, permeates the world, 
the world will become so thoroughly Christianized that there's essentially a golden age uh, of the rule of Christ before Christ's second coming. Why? I think that's dangerous for a couple of reasons. But one of them is because that doesn't teach you to expect from the world what Peter is teaching you to expect from the world here. Peter is teaching you to expect from the world hostility. Or at best, discomfort. Peter is not teaching you to expect a golden age in which everyone else thinks like you and everyone else wants the same thing that you want before Christ comes again. That's not what Peter is teaching. Peter expects this to be our situation until the Lord Jesus returns and the trumpet sounds and the dead are raised. This will be our situation. Aliens with the stench of heaven on us. Peter is showing that only one event changes our status as exiles. Look at chapter 1, verses 3 through 7 again. Born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept where? In heaven. Your inheritance isn't here. You're not sliding into your inheritance slowly as the gospel permeates the nations and as the world becomes more and more Christianized. We don't inherit this world on the, this side of the second coming of Christ. The coming of Jesus Christ is our blessed hope. Look at verse 5. Who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed when? In the last time. Not now. On the last day. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. Right now is the little while. Right now we are being grieved by various trials. So the the tested genuineness of your faith, these trials are there to test the genuineness of our faith. More precious than gold, the that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ, when Christ's glory is unveiled from heaven. He says, though you do not now see him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So Peter teaches us how teaches us what we should expect from the world. But Peter also properly locates our hope. Peter properly locates our hope. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him, and you rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. We rejoice with unconquerable joy in this age, even as we are opposed by the world. That is what the gospel produces in the people of God. It produces unconquerable joy. The gospel produces the kind of people whose hope and joy cannot be killed because their hope and their joy aren't in the things of this world. They're in the things of the next world, the one that is descending from heaven with Jesus Christ. Peter gives us an iron grip on our hope for the future. His hope 
and the hope of his readers is not in anything on this side of the second coming of Christ. It's in Jesus Christ alone. He understands that our inheritance is on the other side of that great day. Nothing in this world can be the object of our hope, the foundation of our faith, or our ultimate treasure. All of these things will fade away. Look at how Peter describes our heavenly inheritance. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Imperishable, meaning it lasts forever. Undefiled, meaning it is unstained by sin that corrupts everything in this world. And unfading. And unfading, honestly to me, is one of the most beautiful parts about that promise. Because not only does that say something about the the value of my inheritance in Christ, it also says that I I will have a heart that Christ will never become old to. Day after day in my heavenly inheritance, I will wake up saying how beautiful is my inheritance in Christ. Day after day, I will wake up more loving Jesus than the day before because He is unfading in beauty and glory and we've been given a new nature that will be then perfected to enjoy that forever. Our hope is not here. That's what Peter's saying. And he's saying it for really practical reasons. That's one of the reasons I love this book. He's saying that because they're going to go through something horrible. He talks about now, if you've been grieved by various trials, the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that though it te- is perishes though it is tested by fire. He talks later in the epistle about, in a a way that he signals that he expects the intensity of their persecution to increase. But this letter is written so they might know who they are, know what they're supposed to hope in ultimately, know what they're supposed to delight in, what they're supposed to treasure above all things, so that they might live well in the world that they inhabit right now. That's, that's why this letter is practical. It's this is how you should then live with this identity and this great hope in Christ. So I would just by, conclude by asking you a couple of questions. Who are you? What do you expect out of life? Do you expect the same things that all the people out there expect? Is your expectation, American dream, Christianity, a nice car, a nice house, a nice job, a thriving life, ultimately to slip into death pain-free one day? Is that your hope? Is that what you expect out of life? Do you expect good relationships with everyone in the world without any opposition, Peter's teaching you to expect something else. And then lastly, what is your greatest hope in life? Is your greatest hope in the kingdom of this world or is it Jesus Christ himself unveiled in all of his glory from heaven? Is it the fact that Christ will be yours forever? Christ will be yours forever and ever and ever and all things are yours in him. 
That is your inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, and it will be revealed one day. Peter writes to turn our eyes to that. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for our great inheritance, our great hope, and the great reality that you have chosen us before the foundation of the world and made us yours through the death and resurrection of your Son and the outpouring of your Spirit. Pray that your Spirit would apply these truths to our hearts today. And may we live well in the world to witness to the kingdom to come. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. In closing, please turn to hymn number one in the hymns of grace. Shall we stand as we sing?
say amen to that as well. Uh, remember that for the congregation, we're walking through uh, the building, uh, the First Christian Church building that we're in talks about buying at 3 p.m. Uh, 3 p.m., so meet us there and we'll walk through the building together and see what the Lord might have for us there. Uh, once again, if you need the address, come to myself or look it up on Google, come to the deacons, just uh, make sure you know where you're going. <laughs> <laughs>